You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death's construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwashed minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events this to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week. Yes, I am smiling and I'm smiling because I can talk to you on the Anarchist World this week, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. I can talk to you in every state in this country. I can talk to you courtesy of the World Wide Web. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au and if you want to know where to send all your bouquets to... Not your brickbats. I always think of bouquet, a Mrs. Bouquet in keeping up appearances. So, well, there's plenty of places. We're everywhere. Just like your father in the sky, I am everywhere. And my name's Joseph Toscana, but I don't, I don't, I don't promise eternal salvation. What I promise is hard work. And listening to the Anarchist World this week is hard work because what we attempt, and the key word is attempt, and many times we don't succeed and other times we succeed, is to present what's happening to you on a platter so you don't have to get dirty listening to the garbage that I have to listen to all week in order to come up with these particular subjects during the Anarchist World this week. So I am sacrificing my brain cells my morals, my ethics by uh, looking at the Murdoch media and Channel 9 media and the rest goes on and on in order to spare you. But there is a price to pay and that price is the fact that we expect you to become involved in activities to ensure what is occurring in this world today doesn't continue to occur. Remember, one day... This little person from the uh, a little church somewhere said slavery's a bad thing, while everybody else said slavery's a good thing. It's in the Bible. It's in the Koran. And um, they said no, nope. and they began a little campaign, and 300 years later there is still slavery, but not as part and parcel of so-called civilised society. So change can come. And if you're wondering why I use the term anarchism, well, it's very simple. The term means without rulers. It doesn't mean without rules, as we're led to believe. It means without rulers. And what is the problem with having rulers? Well, it's inequalities in power and wealth, which create most of the problems that we face as individuals, as communities, as uh, regions, as nation-states, and on a global scale. It's inequalities in power 
and wealth. And the anarchist struggle is the struggle to share power, devolve power, possibly through direct democratic concepts. There are other concepts by which you can share power and to hold wealth in common and use it for the common good. So if you're involved in that struggle, I've got good news and bad news for you. The good news is you are an anarchist. The bad news is you won't grow horns and tails. You have a halo over your head because you're involved in that struggle that human beings have been involved in for thousands of years to ensure that everybody on the planet lives a reasonable life and the planet survives at the same time. Now, I'd like to start off the program after the uh, you know, sermon talking about trickle-down economics, but I don't use the word trickle because, you know, trickle-down economics, at least you get a little bit of uh, water on your dusty face and you feel a little bit better. But I'm talking about the death of trickle-down economics. Now, whether you know it or not, over the last four decades, we have been the victims of an economic experiment. Forget about COVID-19, forget about vaccination. If you really want to know about experiments that affect billions of people, let's look at trickle-down economics, commonly known as trickle-down economics. It's a very simple concept which was pushed to the front of the economic theories by Reagan and Thatcher in the Western world and was uh, taken up by uh, the Chinese Communist Party, the Russian Communist Party, and the list goes on and on. It's a very simple concept. And the concept is this that if you reduce taxes for the individual and corporations, they'll have more money to invest in the economy. That means they will create more jobs, more people will be employed, will be part of the uh, wage slavery mill. And at the same time, taxation revenue does not decrease. That's the theory, and for four decades we have been pursuing that theory. Four decades, four decades later, let's look at what's happened. Well, what we've seen is the biggest transfer of power and wealth that we have seen since time began. Now, I know it sounds, you, you know, it sounds horrific. It sounds as if I'm hallucinating. I've been on an LSD trip or something. But what we've seen in the last four decades is the biggest transfer of wealth from those who have nothing to those who have a lot. It's very simple. Every single analysis that has been done has highlighted the increasing inequality in the Western world. Increasing inequality in all those countries, all those sovereign nation states that took on trickle-down economics as their fundamental economic principle. And we are now paying the price. At the same time, taxation revenue per head of population has decreased because those people who earn the most, those corporations that earn the most, pay the least tax. And what that means is there is less resources available to look after the interests of the citizens and residents of this country and every other country that's taken on trickle-down economics. Now, we may feel a little bit richer 
than when we started on this uh, journey four decades ago, but we were a lot poorer in terms of debt, in terms of the amount of debt we need to service. We are a lot poorer in terms of the life which is led by the 30% of Australians who rely on Social Security benefits to survive, and all those insecure workers, over 40% of the population, who have insecure work. So trickle-down economics has basically been found to be a con. It's a 20, 21st century Ponzi scheme. It's a Ponzi scheme for the rich, where we've seen wealth removed from almost every layer of society, ending up in the pockets of the investment class, which makes up about 8% of this country's population, those people with disposable income at the end of the day who can take advantage of this country's investment-friendly laws to invest, and also it's, it's bloated the pockets of the Forests, the Reinhardts, the Murdochs, and the list goes on and on, of the world, around the world. And when you think that eight people own 40% of the resources on planet Earth, you know something has gone horribly wrong. So obviously, now that people have realised, and one good thing about COVID-19, and there are good things about COVID-19, but one good thing is the fact that people have realised that trickle-down economics was a farce. It was a con. It was a Ponzi scheme, and it does not benefit the majority of the population. Let's move on. So what does that mean? Now, Mr Frydenberg, our lovely treasurer, our wonderful treasurer, that's federal treasurer, has got a problem. He needs to do more for less as the population Ages and as the cheap labour sources that we relied on from overseas dry up because of COVID-19. So we need to do more for less. The government needs to do more for less because as the population ages, the responsibility for servicing the COVID-19 debt and the responsibility for providing services to an ageing population uh, increases on pay-as-you-earn taxpayers. And it increases on pay-as-you-earn taxpayers for one very simple reason. Because we do not own the resources in this country. What we have done is we have turned over our natural resources to private companies and individuals and corporations whose responsibility is to maximise profits for themselves at the expense of the community, and we have relied on individual taxation, not corporate taxation. Don't forget, don't forget that almost 70% of every tax dollar that goes into the Commonwealth coffers, into the Treasury, comes from individuals paying tax. It does not come from corporate taxation because most corporations can use the loopholes in current legislative... uh, in current legislation to avoid, legally avoid, paying tax. It's that simple. That simple. So what does the Treasurer have to do? Now, he's going to do what the world has done over the last two to three decades, which has caused a lot of damage 
to individuals and communities. So what he wants to introduce, once COVID-19 is no longer a major economic threat, austerity measures. You like that word? We are going to reintroduce austerity economics, another economic theory which has been shown to do the very opposite of what it says it's going to do. And austerity economics means that you remove government services. And we've seen this to a significant degree over the last, you know, 40 years, 40 to 50 years, where it's those people who rely on government support through a social security net, it is these people who will be hit the hardest in terms of the services they are able to access. That's what austerity economics is about. It's about increasing poverty in the community. It's about decreasing options for people in the community. It's about ensuring that the 1% who own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication continue to dominate life on this planet and in this country. And not just economically, but culturally, socially, environmentally, because it's all interlinked, totally interlinked. So here we have the death of trickle-down economics, and at the same time, Mr Frydenberg, the Coalition's Treasurer, is talking about placing austerity economics back on the national agenda. Now, you may say to me, look, Joe, this is all, you know, this is all highfalutin stuff. What's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with me? You know, what's it got to do with me? What's it got to do with my family? What's this all about? What's it got to do with you? What's it got to do with me and you? It, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the issue is it's got a lot to do with you because the way you are currently living is totally dependent on implementation of economic theory. Whether you're on a social security benefit, whether you're a small business, whether you're a corporation, whether you're a wage earner, is all dependent how you survive, how you live on the type of economic theory. And these are theories. These are not laws which are written in stone. This is not a... Economics is not about a Ten Commandments written in stone, taken down from the mountain. This is, these are theories. And these theories, when they're implemented, have impacts on the lives of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. We saw that in India recently, where the government was attempting to globalise agriculture in India. And over one third of Indians still continue to rely on agriculture in order to survive. And that would have meant, and that legislation has gone through, was being pushed back currently because of widespread uh, dissatisfaction and widespread protests, that would have meant the lives of hundreds of millions of Indians would be negatively impacted. So these are theories. So why do particular governments push particular theories? Why do opposition parties push particular economic theories. And it's very simple. They push the economic theories which benefit those people who pull the levers of power. 
Now, our parliamentary puppets, our parliamentary puppets, to a significant degree, do the bidding of the 1% of the population that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. Because if they don't do their bidding, they may find their chances of being re-elected are minimised, become minimal, become non-existent because of the concerted propaganda efforts from this section of society which has the resources and the, compun- and the communication network in order to marginalise any political group which attempts to question dominant economic ideology and dominant economic theory. But the fact is, we can challenge it. And that's what the anarchist world is about. That's what this is about. Anarchist world this week is about this. It's about letting people know that ultimately political authority, economic authority social authority, cultural authority, environmental authority in a democratic society lies in the hands of the people. It doesn't lie in the hands of the government of the day. It doesn't lie in the hands of the 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. It doesn't lie in the hands of the Australian Defence Forces. It doesn't lie in the hands of the government or the constitution. It ultimately lies in the hands of the people. And while we are willing to accept these theories and allow governments to implement these theories by dividing us, then we deserve what we have. Because the history, human history, is a history of resistance. I'll give you an example, and I've given this example ad nauseum, but I'll give it again. During the 19th century, the state had one function only, and that function was to ensure that those people who exercised power continued to exercise power, democratic elections or no democratic elections. That was the function of the state. The state was not interested in the welfare of its citizens. It had no interest in them, none whatsoever. No legal responsibility, no social responsibility. And if you look at the situation that West, you know, Western, the Western world was living in at that particular point in time, it was a pathetic situation. Pathetic. Now, through struggle, through the deaths of hundreds of thousands, millions of people, through countless strikes, reform movements, occupations, revolutions, the state was forced to change to a significant degree. And we had the evolution of a state which had some responsibilities for its citizens. It had responsibilities in terms of providing essential infrastructure and essential services. And what we saw is the nationalisation of a, a nas- saw the nationalisation of essential services, which means the state through the taxpayer, which is you, funded essential services like electricity, gas, roads, and the list goes on and on, health, you know, funded these services and provided these services to the community as a whole. Now, what we've seen over the last 40 years is a reversal of this trend, but I'll speak about that in a second. At the same time, the state was forced to take on 
responsibility for the welfare of its citizens through the creation of a social security net, through the creation of unemployment benefits, through the creation of disability support pensions, through the creation of single parents' benefits. And let's not forget, it wasn't until the 1970s when the Whitlam government came into power that single mothers were actually able to access social security benefits in this country. So through struggle, we forced the state, at the same time that 1% that owned the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication, to provide essential services and, a social, and provide a social security net. Now this struggle continues, but over the last 40 years, during the period of so-called trickle-down economics and austerity economics, we have seen this equation turns on it, turned on its head. 40 years ago, if you're an investor and you're invested a dollar and there was a profit made, you would receive about a third of that dollar back as your reward and the workers who created that profit for you received about two-thirds of the dollar back, 66 cents in the dollar back. 40 years down the track, in 2021, when we think we're such a sophisticated society because we have social media, mobile phones, internet, you know, uh, podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, and the list goes on and on, it's been reversed. For every dollar an investor makes in profit, 66 cent goes to the investor, 33 cent goes to the person who's provided that service. And how has that occurred? It's occurred through the passage of legislation, especially in Australia, which has basically made strikes illegal and has marginalised trade unions and has made them out to be criminal associations. And if you think I'm exaggerating, if you go on a wildcat strike and are involved in an occupation, you can be jailed up to 25 years under current legislation. And don't think they wouldn't do it. Don't think they wouldn't do it. And if you're a trade union, you can be bankrupted at any time. And I spoke about this last week. And if you want to go on strike, you cannot withdraw your labour outside an enterprise bargaining period. And during that period, you've got to jump through so many hoops, the possibility of you withdrawing your labour is minimal. And if you do withdraw your labour in a dispute which has, hasn't been sanctioned by the Fair Work Commission during an enterprise bargaining agreement period, you can be fined, the individual worker can be fined $10,000 a day. They're not interested in having martyrs in jails under, under, under which uh, you know, people can organise. They're not interested in creating martyrs. What they want is to bankrupt workers. They want to threaten workers' livelihoods, the livelihoods of not just them, but the people they support, their families. That's what that legislation was designed to do. So we have a situation in 2021 where basically all the legislation that goes through federal parliament, and we've seen examples of this over the last few months, supports the profits, the activities, the power of that 1% that own the means of production, distribution, exchange and communication. If you think I'm wrong... I'm happy to be proved wrong, but I know I'm not. I know I'm not, because what I've seen over the last 40 years is all those reforms, all those public assets being pushed away, being removed. I've seen the wholesale 
privatisation of almost anything that can be privatised happening. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Extraordinary when you think about it. So let's move on. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the community radio network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. Now, Australia's a problem, like Canada, like the United States of America, all those settler societies, all those societies which evolved as a result of European colonisation, where, you know, there were people living here, believe it or not. I know you find this hard to believe, but this country, Australia, concentrated on Australia, was based on the concept of terra nullius, the land of no one. Legal. Legal fiction. Like we have economic fiction, we have legal fiction in this country. Terra nullius, the land of no one. And between 1788... 1788 and 1992, that's over 200 years, we had the legal fiction this country was settled on. Now, the reality was that people had lived on this continent for over 60,000 years and they had, uh, they had and continue to have significant attachment to the land, their own laws, their own economic systems, their own ways of settling disputes, their own ways of uh, surviving in an environment which can be particularly harsh in many parts of this country which had evolved over 60,000 years. But we turned up on the 26th of January 1788 at Botany Bay and then moved into you know, Port Jackson, put up Queen Lizzie's flag, which has been put up in, 19, in, in uh, 1770 by Captain Cook, replanted the flag and said, this is our place. And with us, we bought disease. Now, if you think COVID-19 is an issue, if you look at the early accounts of colonisation, the impact that disease had on Indigenous people in this country and around the world where the settler societies expanded was extraordinary. In some parts of Australia, over 90% of the Indigenous population died of measles, smallpox, diphtheria, all diseases they'd been protected from, years before they saw a white face finish the job take their lands but we were on safe ground we were on safe ground as a people the legal fiction of terra nullius existed because people didn't see cities no treaty was ever entered into any of the 220 plus independent sovereign aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nation states which existed on this continent for thousands of years we just took it we liked it we took it. That's right. Not only did we take it, we got rid of the original inhabitants. Now, I know this sounds melodramatic, but they're the facts. A fact is a fact is a fact is a fact. And it doesn't matter how you know you try to dress it up, a fact is a fact. And that's the facts. But in 1992, on the 3rd of June 1992, after a 10-year case that had gone through the courts. Ten-year case through the Queensland courts and eventually into the High Court of Australia. 
in what is what is termed the Marbo case, where three respondents from uh, Mur in the Torres Strait brought a case which was based on traditional ownership boundaries, brought a case to the High Court, and the High Court found that Indigenous Australians had legal rights to land in this country because of the prior occupation of this country by them. Now, obviously, there were little asterisks here and there, the fact that it had to be continuous, the fact that has it had it been removed because people had been destroyed, did the remnants of particular groups have any, any, any say, but the kernel of the decision was that terra nullius was a legal lie. It was fiction. Like trickle-down economics and austerity economics, it was a theory. It was fiction. It had nothing to do with reality. And for far too long, Australians have refused to acknowledge the length and breadth of the Mabo decision. Now, the Mabo decision opened the gates to treaty negotiations, opened the gates to compensation. It opened many gates. It wasn't a perfect judgment, but it was the judgment which allowed the current debates to occur. Now, here in Melbourne, we were going to mark Marbo Day on the 3rd of June because of COVID-19 restrictions. We were not able to do that. We will be marking Marbo Day next Thursday, the 8th of July, and we will be gathering, whether it's a group of three or 30 or 300 or 50 or whatever, we'll be gathering at the base of the flagpoles in Federation Square at midday. We'll be gone by one, but we'll be there at midday to mark Marbo Day during NAIDOC Week. NAIDOC Week, the National Aboriginal and Islander Day of Observance Committee Week, which has been established by Indigenous people to highlight their continued existence on this planet, on this continent, and their continued struggle for justice. So it's come and join us. Simple ceremony, nothing spectacular. 12 o'clock this Thursday, Federation Square, next to the flagpoles. They're right at the front of Federation Square. There's a lot of bunting around Federation Square currently. There's a lot of works going on. But you can come in, turn left, and there it is. We're starting at midday sharp, so you're all welcome. But what I'm saying to you is look at this country's history because facts, whether they're unpalatable or not, are facts. It's that simple. Facts are facts are facts are facts are facts. Let's move on to another fact. Now, again, this is Victorian-centric and may be, may be in other parts of Australia, your situation is a little bit better, and it is a little bit better in many parts of Australia, and I'm talking about public housing. Now, the Victorian state government, the Labor state government and the previously the Liberal state government, has been hell-bent on privatising the public housing sector. 
hellbent. And it was interesting to see the current minister who's responsible for public housing, I think it's Mr Wynne, the minister, the uh, member for Richmond, a bloke who should find himself out on his ass at the next state election because of the lies they continue to peddle, that's the government continues to peddle regarding public housing. Now, one of those press releases, media releases, came out 24 hours ago which said, what nice people we are. Look at all the things we have done for public, for social housing. Oops, I said social housing. That's right, social housing. Now, social housing, as I've said before, is not public housing. Public housing is state-owned, state-managed. Social housing is privately owned, privately managed, although it's bankrolled by taxpayers' money. And that's the key. Taxpayers' money. And he's carrying on about the fact, this is Mr Wynn, they've built 250, wow, 250 social housing units from the $7 billion, or is it $5 billion, that they've allocated for the social housing sector. And I thought to myself, 250 houses... This is the very mob, the liar, liar, pants on fire mob, that during the last state election, because we placed pressure, real pressure, public housing, everybody's business, and defend and extend public housing, placed real pressure on the state government leading up to the state election in 2018. And a week before the election, realising this was their Achilles heel, their public housing, their non-existent public housing policies, they promised to build 1,000 public housing units, houses over the next four years. Almost three years down the track, how many public housing units have they built? None. Nin, nil, zilch. How many do you think they're going to build? None. Don't talk to me about public-private partnerships when 10% goes to the public sector and 90% goes to the private sector where public land is offered free of charge to private organisations and then the, the deeds are given over to you know, private organisations to run the public housing sector and they call, and they, and they call it social housing. Sounds nice, doesn't it? Social housing. Affordable housing. It just sounds so wonderful. you just got another private land person, landlord or landlady, hassling you. The rents continue to increase. Not every part of that sector goes to people in need. A lot of that accommodation goes to people who can afford to rent privately. Ah, well. So we will be resurrecting the vigils outside the Victorian Parliament House regarding public housing at the end of the month, at the end of July. We will be resurrecting them because we wish to continue this campaign because we can't let the state government get away with the lies which they continue to peddle about their support for housing for people who find themselves in a position where they can't afford to rent 
whether they're homeless, whether they're couch surfing, and whether they can't afford to enter the private housing market because of escalating costs. So let's not forget that. You're listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. That's right. My name's Joseph Toscano. I'm hosting today's program. That's right, hosting today's program. Now, let's move on. Look, if you want to join public interest before corporate interests, you're welcome. Go to their website, pipsy.net. I'm the registered officer, foundation member of public interest before corporate interests. Been a bit of a hard struggle getting members, but, um, you know, if you want to rain on their parade, if you want to piss on their porch at the next state, at the next federal election, you need to be part of that campaign. And to be part of that campaign, because of current legislation, you have to be a registered political party. You can be an independent, but it's a lot of rigmarole. But if you are interested, go to the website, download the application form, join public interest before corporate for the next few months so we can register as a federal political party before the next federal election and contest the next Victorian state election in 2022. Not that we're going to win power, but what we can do is we can change policy. And what the 2018 public housing campaign highlighted is that people working together can force the government to change its policies. Although we haven't been able to force the government to honour their promises. That's a different matter. Because, as you know, the interesting thing about parliamentary elections is I can promise you anything, but if I'm in power, I do what I like and there's nothing you can do until the next election in three to four years' time. Now, talking about elections, I can smell an election. Well, I'm not that... Well, I can't really, but, you know, a federal election has to be held by March 2022. And... uh, Obviously, people are getting ready. Now, you may not be getting ready, but the major political parties are getting ready. And I love a little bit of dirty talk, you know? And the great thing about election is you have a lot of dirty talking during elections, a lot of dirty talking, a lot of dog whistling. I'll say it again, dog whistling, you know? All that dirty talk. It's wonderful. And elections are won and lost on the interpretation which is given to words. And these words which are used to win or lose elections are designed to divide us as a people. They're designed to ensure that we fight constantly with each other for a bigger share of the government revenue, for fight each other because our different racial origins, the languages we speak, and dog whistling is a very, very, very fine art. But you can learn the fine art of dog whistling and uh, highlight that all it is is dog whistling by keeping your ears open when they talk about things, when people in authority talk about things, not just politicians, but senior bureaucrats, media gurus, media presenters, 
And here we go. Let's look at the lexicon of language which will be used to divide us to ensure the 1% continues to manipulate the parliamentary puppets to ensure their interests, that's corporate interests, are put before public interests. The first word we're all familiar with is the word welfare. And I'm, I'm sick to the stomach when I hear organisations which are involved in the struggle to protect people's interests, the very people who should know better using the word welfare. We do not have a welfare society. We do not have welfare recipients. When you use the word welfare publicly, it denigrates, it isolates, it marginalises the very people you're talking about. And it is designed and used in that fashion. And if you pay taxes and you get your tax statement, it will have welfare. So much of your taxes went to welfare. We don't have a welfare system. We have a social security system which creates a social security net to ensure those that need support continue to receive support. There is nothing wrong with asking for support when you find yourself in a difficult situation, unless you've got a rich mummy and daddy or tons of money in the bank, most of us will find ourselves needing some type of social security support during our life. If anybody uses the word welfare, pull them up, because it is designed, it is designed to denigrate the whole concept of providing a safety net, a social security safety net for people. The next word, which they'll use is customers. Customers. When you interact with a government department, you are a customer. You're not a customer. You're a citizen or a permanent resident, or an asylum seeker or a refugee. You are not a customer. Customers don't normally own the shops they shop in. What cringing... Um, customers complain. They have the capacity to complain. They don't have the capacity to change things. We are citizens. We need to rehabilitate that word. I am a citizen. Whenever I deal with a government department, I say, I'm not a customer. Don't call me a customer. I'm a citizen. I have rights and responsibilities. Treat me with the respect I deserve as a citizen of this country. Although, as you know, it doesn't seem to amount to much citizenship when we can prevent people from returning to this country for years, but that's another story. Citizenship. So we've got welfare. We've got customers. And the list goes on and on. They'll drag out these dog-whistling terms, you know. Lifters and leaners. Lifters and leaners. The rich are the lifters. The leaners are the poor. How pathetic. So look at the words that comes out of their mouths. Dissect the words. Conduct a campaign against that word. Those words are designed to marginalise us and divide us. So people... Vote in different ways, you know. 
welfare recipients, in inverted commas, one third of the population, the rest, ah, wage earners, investors. Let's denigrate the welfare recipients. Then comes the concept of public. Everything public is bad. It's inefficient. It doesn't work. It's dirty. It's somehow it's beneath us to rely on a public service. To me, the concept of private investment for private profit, capitalism, is, is dirty. It's bad. Because what it does, it actually profits from people's labour and misery. The concept of a public system is to ensure that everybody in the country, irrespective of who they are, how they look, whether they're short or tall, male or female, in between, is treated as an equal. That's the whole purpose of having public services. So think about it. I think every week from now to the federal election, we'll look at a few other words, and if you've got any particular words you'd like me to look at, I'm uh, happy to look at them. All right, let's move on. This is the Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. I don't know. Federal government, concerned. It's concerned about charities, coalition government. There are about 50,000 charities in the country. Most of them toe the line. You know, they rely on government grants. They rely on, um, you know, um, government contracts to survive and prosper. There are some charities which are multi-billion dollar industries courtesy of federal government grants and contracts. And when you sign a contract, you sign a contract which says your employees cannot criticise that particular facet. And we saw that with the robo-debt fiasco when the government was... Uh, was um, acting totally illegally and stealing money off people and driving people to suicide and all the so-called charities which were administering the system didn't speak up against it. All the charities you'd expect to speak up against, the big ones, the multi-billion dollar ones, shut their mouths. It's the same goes with uh, those job agencies and most of them are uh, you know, charity-based. Well... There are some charities out there which don't rely on government money and they open their mouths. They organise actions against government policies. They attempt to change government policy by mobilising people. I know, it's terrible, isn't it? You've got charities which understand that fundamental principle of life. As a charity, you can affect the lives of a small number of people. But if you can change government policy through action, you can change the lives of the country as a whole. And that's the difference between those charities which are businesses which rely on government contracts and those charities which fund themselves, don't rely on government money and have the capacity to open their mouths and organise against the government. Whether it's an environmental group, whether it's a group like a community radio station, 
which may benefit from tax deductibility. If people donate to keep that community radio station going, the government wants to ensure that it has the power to remove groups from the charity register and remove their tax deductibility. So it wants to control the message. I mean, the Chinese Communist Party, and especially the Hong Kong division, will be very proud of the current slew of legislation which is and regulations which are in the wing regarding muzzling the ability of non-government funded charities from speaking their mind on behalf of the people they have been organised to support and represent. You're listening to The Anarchist World This Week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. Now, I do like to have a bit of fun, but unfortunately this isn't very funny. Barnaby Joyce is now the Deputy Prime Minister. Those empty heads that represent regional Australia, the National Party, are back. Not the sensible ones, but those that are basically the servants of the resources industry. And nothing highlights this more than the fact that the water portfolio, which is fundamental to farming, and I've been farming for many, many years. I mean, I started my life as a farmer, not as a doctor. Water is fundamental to growing anything, is now not part of the cabinet. Because Mr Joyce wanted to put his funny people back into positions of authority in this country. Bridget's back, yes, Bridget McKenzie, the sports rorts person, back. They're all back. They're all back. There they are saying they're fighting for regional Australia. Nothing more transparent. Naked ambition which has nothing to do with governing people. So if you are find yourself living in a National Party electorate, now is the time to start organising independence to stand against the incumbent members. And there's 21 of them. Because this small rump, which gets about 4 to 5% of the vote every year, has a fundamental impact on environmental policies, social security policies, infrastructure policies, a fundamental impact. And when you get people of the calibre of Barnaby and Bridget in positions of authority in the National Cabinet, you understand that we need to resist this push as much as possible. Not that if you don't live in a National Party electorate, there's not much you can do about it except laugh or cry, depending on how you feel in the day. But if you do live in a National Party electorate, now is the time. A slew of independent candidates can change the result in a number of those electorates. Think about it. As I said before, the only thing they care about is they don't care if you march till your feet blister. They don't care if you occupy your factory. Unless it's a mass occupation across the country, then they care a lot and bring out the uh, army. They don't care if you don't vote or you vote informal. They don't care. But they do care if you piss on their doorstep. 
because the stench has an impact on them. So it's important, and we have seen it in the seat of Indi, in Victoria, that local candidates can overturn National Party candidates. Think about it. Rail on their parade, piss on their doorstep, cause them a stink, give them a hard time. And if we were registered as a political party, that's public interest before corporate interest, we could put candidates in all those elections and have an impact on the final outcome. Now, last but not least, the COVID-19 gobsmacking incompetence. I despair. I mean, I've been a doctor for over almost 45 years. I despair. I despair when we go into lockdown. And this country is in 60 to 70% of the country is in lockdown as I speak. I despair. And I despair when I see a program which could end lockdowns, which is a mass vaccination program, be so poorly administered. I despair when we don't have a centre for disease control. I despair when we don't have purpose-fit quarantine facilities built around this country 18, was it 15 months after the pandemic began. I despair. And for a significant reason, this desperation is based on the incompetence, total incompetence of a federal government that cannot even implement the most basic Services and needs to call in the army to try to coordinate what should be an easily implemented Commonwealth responsibility. So, you want to end COVID-19? You want to bury trickle-down economics? You want to kick to death austerity economics? You want to send Joyce and Bridget back to the Dark Ages Join public interest before corporate interests. Download the application from pipsy.net. Interested in public housing, go to our Facebook pages, Public Housing Everybody's Business. Defend and extend public housing. You can leave messages on 0439395489. I'm quite happy to send you out some application forms for public interest before corporate interests. Don't forget the uh, cancelled reschedule Marbo Day in Melbourne on the 8th of July, midday. You can write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. YouTube, Public Interest Before Corporate Interests, Instagram, and the list goes on and on and on and on. Ultimately, it's up to you. Just don't listen to the anarchist world this week. Do something about it. Do it now. Minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death's construction An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds Oh, 
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.